There are some books in the New Testament that really just uh, grab your attention. Sometimes it's because of the uh, orderly issue-by-issue orientation, like 1 Corinthians, where Paul would say, now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. Sometimes it's because you uh, are deeply invested in studying through a specific book, like maybe Romans or Hebrews or something like that. What we're going to look at tonight, though, is a much shorter letter. In fact, it's one of the most encouraging books that we have, and yet it was written at a time where congregations were struggling, were hurting, were suffering because of a schism in the church. 1 John 1 and verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. It's an encouraging passage. In fact, when you look through 1 John, that's, this is one of the letters that has perhaps more encouraging passages that we just know. Maybe we don't know the exact verses, but we can, if we hear just a, a few words, we'll be able to figure out the rest. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is what? Greater, is he, greater than he who is in the world. Uh, chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In chapter 5 and verse 13, I write these things to you who believe the na- in the name of the Son of God that you may know and have eternal life. It's an encouraging book. And yet it's in 1 John that we read in chapter 2 and verse 19, they went out from us. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. 1 John is a book that is full of so many encouraging phrases and and, and verses that, that we cherish and love. But it's written in the midst of a church split. It's an incredibly simple and practical letter, but it is notoriously difficult to outline. The second years are about to learn that this next week. Aaron's the only one that's ahead of the game. The other two are out probably doing stuff, preaching and things like that. But uh, so, yeah, I saw him. He took out notes now. That's good. <laughs> It's notoriously difficult to outline. If you're, if you're a guy like me who goes and looks to see what other folks have, how they've broken up the book, every one of them begins with something like, this is not the typical letter. This doesn't have the flow of Paul where he has, like in 1 Corinthians, now concerning, now concerning, that logical flow that we're so used to. Not that there's not a flow to the text, but it's written in a very different way than, than what we are usually reading in the New Testament. It's, it's different than the Gospel of John. You know, it's fun because in the Gospel of John, you have in about... Uh, John chapter 20 and 21, uh, you, you, you have John saying these things are written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing you might have life in his name. Perfect. Look at the rest of John through that, uh, uh, th- through those glasses. The purpose of John's writing. 
Do you know how many times you have in 1 John we're writing these things because, for example, in chapter 1, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. All right. Seems like there there you go. There's the purpose. But look at chapter 2 and verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who... He says, I'm writing to you like 13 times through the book. And they're all different. And so how do you figure out the purpose of the book? I think that chapter 2 and verse 19 gives us a good set of circumstances for why. Because there have been people who have left. And they are going through an incredibly difficult time. More about that in a moment. But if you look at 1 John and keep these two key themes in mind. Light and love. In fact, if you go through about chapter 3 and verse 9 or 10. Light. And then after that, love. And how it all relates to God. And there's three concepts that come together throughout the book that are repeated and looked at in various aspects, which is what we're going to be looking at uh, tonight. But it is incredibly simple and practical, and yet it's notoriously difficult to outline. It's full of concrete pictures and, and, and contrasts. In fact, uh, when you look at the word use, this is one of the books, and I think the uh, second years even did a little bit, uh, 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 beginning Greek students, this is the book that they usually go to uh, because of the vocabulary, because of the clear contrast, because uh, it, it, it does have these things in there, but it also has a whole lot of depth that you have to mull over and chew on for a while and consider. In fact, I like how one guy described this book. It has an M. Night Shyamalan ending because of the way how you read through the book and you start to get a picture and then the very last verse, uh, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Where has he been talking about idolatry? We'll see that here in just a little bit. But it's full of concrete pictures and contrasts and yet has depth that needs to be thought about. Things like light and darkness, you'll see contrasted. Lies and truth, love and hatred, worldliness and spirituality. These are all contrasts that come to the front of uh, the text as we read through. And it begins, it begins with knowing God, the true God. That which was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. It begins with understanding and knowing the true and real God. But again, it ends, little children, keep yourselves from idols, ending with the plea to stay away from idolatry. 1 John is a beautiful sermon. 
It is a plea for unity in the faith and in a very real sense. And in fact, talking to uh, uh, Steve this morning uh, after services, uh, I'm going to steal his phrase, damage control. For people who have went out from them but are still causing some sort of issue with the brethren of this or these congregations that John is, is writing to. You see, these people just a short time ago had been teaching Bible classes or sharing in fellowship meals and participated in all the things that that we still do, and they've left. And and there has been some tension. If you read through 1 John, um, I uh, grew up in a farmland in Colorado, and there was a little town uh, near where we used to live that had a railroad that would go through. And uh, there was a sign on the railroad, or right next to the railroad tracks, that says, Do not park on tracks. And you have to know the only reason that that's there is because somebody parked on the tracks. Why is John writing these things? It's because these are struggles and issues that they are dealing with. In fact, when you go through, you can see that there has been tension in the congregations. Uh, You get the distinct uh, 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 impression that that these brethren at one time have caused a whole lot of difficulty. Notice, for example, chapter 1 and verse 6 indicates that they have felt they boast that they have fellowship with God but walk in darkness. If we Say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. They boast that they are without sin. Notice verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. They boast that they know God. Notice chapter 2 and verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. They boast they know God, and yet they're disobedient. They boast that they are in the light, but they hate their own brethren. Chapter 2 and verse 9 states. They boast that they love God, but they hate their brothers and sisters. Chapter 4 and verse 20 brings up. It's no wonder that in chapter 2 and verse 16, John says, For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of that, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The church split and it hurt. Because you can remember Jesus' words in his prayer to the Father in John 17, how he would beg for unity, that Christians would be known by their unity and their love for one another. How we're supposed to, to strive for unity. It's kind of funny how you fight for peace. Were these brethren not patient enough with them? Maybe they were thinking that that, that they are in the wrong. 
And John is writing to a hurting church. But it's one of the most encouraging books we have. What we will do for the rest of our time tonight is look at uh, these three concepts that I uh, uh, mentioned at the, uh, just, a, just a moment ago. Three concepts that John uses to encourage the church who has just gone through uh, one of the worst things a congregation can go through. The first uh, emphasis that, that, that John gives, and we're going to be focusing in chapter 2 and then looking through the rest of the book, because like I said, these are repeated and then looked at from different ways. The first concept, John encourages moral faithfulness. It's that simple holiness and purity toward God. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. And by this... We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Consider again the people who had just left. Chapter 1 and verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Notice, walked in darkness, chapter 1 and verse 6. Notice chapter 2 and verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Walking in darkness versus walking in the way that Jesus walked. Notice chapter 1 in verse 8. The claim is that we have no sin and the result is the truth is not in us. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So you have, we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us, 1 in verse 8, and claiming to know God and not keeping his commandments equates to the truth is not in us. Notice verse 10 of chapter 1. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then chapter 2 and verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is that offering, that payment for what we have been guilty of. But notice, if we say we have not sinned, We make God a liar. Why? Because He's the propitiation for our sins, but not ours only, for the whole world. So for us to say that we have not sinned means that Jesus died in vain. It it was useless for Him to. Oh, we, we, we haven't sinned. But the reality is we, we do mess up. We, we have messed up, but it's more than that. Uh, it, it, it's moral failure and, and, and we need help. It's spiritual failure and we cannot save ourselves. And thank God Jesus is our help. He walks perfectly. He continuously cleanses us when we mess up. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 
I think everybody in here tonight recognizes that we live in a world that is gleefully, that, that is, is proud, that, that, that encourages and broadcasts rampant wickedness, praises immorality, and shames those who do not. Sometimes the phrase is used, I think, politically, cancel culture. And it's easy for us to to ask, well, what happened? Didn't things used to be different? And that might be something interesting to study. But I do know that Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, gives an indication that we sometimes maybe overlook. And you, who, the Ephesian Christians, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We've been like this for a long, long time. Now, we may see it a lot more, and, 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 and it might frustrate us more because it hits closer to home. But Paul says, that's the world. And that's how we used to be. And it's in verse 4 that Paul would say, but God, but God... Two of the most powerful words in Scripture, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, and it continues there for telling us what God did. That challenge to faithfulness in 1 John 2 continues again at the end of John 2. Look at verse um, 29. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteous uh, uh, practices righteousness has been born of him. Look at verses four through ten. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident that we are children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So notice this. Like I said, although... First uh, John, it's difficult to, to outline. That doesn't mean he doesn't have structure. We looked at some uh, uh, co- comparisons in chapter 1 and 2, but notice here in 4 through 10, everyone who sins in verse 4, and then verse 8, whoever practices sinning. Notice again in verse 4, the nature of sin is lawlessness. And then again in verse 8, the origin of sin is the devil. In in verse 5, he appeared to take away sins, Christ. 
And in verse 8, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. In verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And in verse 9, no one born of God will continue to practice sin. And verse 10 couples that first concept of of, of living a life, walking in the way that Jesus would have us to walk with something else, the second concept, loving our brethren. You see, when a church, when a congregation is hurting, don't you think it's a good thing to, to practice what we know is right because Christ is right? And if we band together, doesn't that encourage us? But brotherly affection in God encourages a congregation. At least that's what John appeals to in verses 7 through 17. Love and fellowship. In chapter 2 again, beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John uses this phrase, an old commandment. It's an old commandment. And then he says it's a new commandment in some ways, but it's an old commandment in others. That might take your mind back to where when Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you have loved just as I have loved. But it might also take your mind back if you really enjoy the little snippets of the Old Testament or how about when Jesus says the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. He says on those two things hang the law and the prophets. Both of those are in the Old Testament. Leviticus uh, um, 19.18 for loving your neighbor and Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5 for loving God. He says it's an old commandment. You guys know this. But he says it's also new. Why? It's new in strength. That darkness, again, look at the contrast. Light and dark. Love and hate. That darkness, it's passing away. And the true light is already shining. He says one cannot be in the light and hate his brother That person is in the darkness, that stuff that's passing away, and he will stumble being unable to see. It's interesting that it's just in just in this same idea. He says that the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Verse seventeen. Then the world. He says those are not from the Father. In verse sixteen, but are. From the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And you have verses uh, um, 15 through 17 looking at the, the, the wrong kind of love. It's the love of the world, the love of self, the love of sin. 
yet the one who, one who does the will of God abides forever. It, it's the same idea in verses 7 through 11. The true light is shining. The darkness is passing away. And it all centers on love. 12 through 14, it, it shows this brotherly uh, affection with a call to remembrance that, uh, for, for them of what they know that they have in Christ. Little children, fathers, young men, these terms of affection and endearment and family. And he says, your sins are forgiven. You've known him who is from the beginning. You have overcome the evil one. You know the Father. You know him who is from the beginning. You are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Brotherly love is the focus of chapter 3, verses 11 through 18 also. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that, you have, uh, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You can have the hatred of Cain in the world, or the contrast. In verses 12 and 13, and then verses 14 through 18, you can have the love of Christ in the church. In chapter 4, perhaps it's uh, again one of these very popular, well-known, verse 7. In verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest, made known among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like John 1? How the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father? God was manifested through Christ. He was made known. Notice verse 12 of 1 John 4. No one has ever seen God. That's also uh, John 1. No one has ever seen God. But Jesus made him known. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's a pretty powerful statement. God's love is seen through our love. But again, John 1, 18, Jesus made the Father known. Now, the unseen God who once revealed himself in his Son now reveals himself in his people if and when we love each other. 
Our love for one another is evidence of God's presence in our lives. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 17? In fact, we even sing the song, they will know that we're Christians how? By our cars, by our suits, by our Bible. They'll know we are Christians by our love. And yet God, who once revealed himself in his Son, now reveals himself in his people. Not only does God live in us, but his love is made complete in us. God's love is perfected for us, perfected in us, when it is reproduced among us in Christian fellowship. That's a fascinating and and, and just a wonderful thing to consider. How the family of God, I I think I heard a couple of preachers last uh, last week say something along the lines, and I've heard it before, the greatest evidence for God is a Christian. And sometimes the greatest evidence for no God is a Christian. But John emphasizes to these brethren who were struggling that we are to love one another because God is love, because God loved us. And if we do love one another, God and his love are made complete in us. God's love is made complete in us. Third and finally, John does address the problem very specifically on what has been going. He's described their attitude. He's talked about the things, well, if we're saying this, we're not walking in the light. But he also explains very clearly in verses 18 all the way through 27 what is going on in in, in 1 John 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because of no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. There is a dangerous teaching that has crept in. And like I said, this is the third concept. So remember, the first one, faithful living, walking in the way that Jesus walked, faithfulness, holiness. But second, brotherly affection and love, that fellowship that we have with one another, acted out, not simply spoken about. But third, solid conviction about God and who he is and what he has done for us. 
here in 1 John, and really you see it in 2 John, and perhaps even a little bit in 3, but especially 1 and 2, you see very specifically the problem. It's that religious term that everybody kind of jolts up about when they hear Antichrist. And if you haven't looked at the clock yet, we're not going to have time to go and do a whole historical overview of the different views and everything. But John makes it pretty clear how he describes them. He says, they're here. You've heard that anti, and and I I know that um, one translation uses the phrase anti-Messiah because it's the word for Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. And as the, uh, again, as, as you think about this, this Messiah of the Old Testament, the one who is anointed, you actually do see a really interesting, again, there's a lot of depth here, where you have, you're anointed, Christians. These people are against the anointed. Anti-Messiah, anti-Christ. But you have an anointing from God. Do you see the contrast? Are you going to deny what God has given you? And he says, you know the truth. But notice that, that they deny that Jesus is the Christ. They deny the Father and the Son. They deny the Son and so they cannot have the Father because only the Son can reveal the Father to us and reconcile us to Him. This is brought up again in chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe, verse 1, every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Notice there's an indication of what's being taught. They're not teaching that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, whom you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Remember the thing that's passing away? Therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There is something very dangerous about this doctrine, and it's because it is against everything that God has revealed himself to be. Notice verse 14. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. In fact, verse 9, in this the love of God is made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son to the world. Verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be that propitiation for our sins. Finally, look at chapter 5. You have, as I said, these repeated concepts 
of faithful living, of brotherly love, and of Jesus being the Son of God and believing that he came in the flesh, believing that he died, believing that he rose, that he's seated at the right hand of God. All of these are repeated in various ways. And and sometimes the first and second one will be joined together. And sometimes the first and the third or the second and the third. But chapter 5 and the first, first few verses... Talk about depth. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Think about that. We know that we love the children of God when we are obeying God's commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Faithfulness, love, and believing what God has revealed about Christ. That punchline in verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Ending with one more plea. You you think about this. Our convictions about Jesus Christ and our godly love for one another and our faithful walk with God, that's, that's what keeps us from idols. And in fact, you, you get any of these three, just, just toss one of them out. Faithful living, pride of life. You become the center of your universe instead of God. Hating our brethren, hating those that God himself created, but, but more than that with our brethren, those that are his children, those that are our brothers and sisters? How can we say we love God when we don't even love His family? Or saying that Jesus did not come in the flesh. You know, Paul would say for those who were denying the resurrection that if Christ did not raise, we are of all men most pitiful and we're still dead in our sins. But we know that's not the case. We know that Jesus did come and Jesus did die and Jesus has risen and that Jesus is at the right hand of God and that Jesus is coming back. And knowing that should draw us to Him and to our brothers and sisters who are like-minded. Faith really is the victory that overcomes the world. Tonight, I think I can safely say that this congregation yearns and does walk after God. 
walk in the way that Jesus walked. I think I can, I can easily say that. And I think I can easily say that this congregation is full of love and affection. And I think I can easily say that we believe that Jesus did come in the flesh, that he did die, and that he rose again. So I can't say go and do that, be better, try harder. But I can say, isn't that a wonderful way to glorify God? If you want that, and you don't have it, you have that opportunity. We, we, we will sit down with you and study with you through faith, repentance, and baptism. One comes to God. And can be a new creation. And can walk in the light. Or if you simply need the prayers of this congregation, I know that this is a praying church. And I see every week people who were prayed for. And people who were praying. And we would love to do so. Come as we stand and sing this song.